Word. We're going to backtrack this morning. We did uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, before I went to Kansas City, we looked at Acts chapter 16. But I want to backtrack. I want to go back and I want to look at uh, specifically uh, some verses beginning in verse 16. And the reason I want to look at this is because I think that uh, what is happening here with Paul and Silas uh, as they're out spreading the gospel is that they are encountering, encountering demonic activity. And I think it's important for us to realize that no matter what you believe about Jesus or spiritual matters, the story of your life is meant to be incredible. God's designed it to be impactful, for it to be important, but that has to come through the transforming work of salvation that is offered through Jesus Christ. God has a wonderful plan. We hear that phrase a lot. Uh, pastors will say, God has a wonderful plan for your life. And that is true, but that is a plan that is uh, mandated and dictated by our relationship with Christ. And, and because that's true, and this is equally important to understand, if that's what God has planned for you, then Satan has something planned to resist that. You know, he's going to come against that. Uh, when we're not saved, when we don't have a relationship with Christ, uh, we are no threat to the kingdom of darkness. There's no problem. Satan doesn't worry about us. He's not concerned about us. But when we get saved, we become a direct threat against all that he desires to do and is planned on doing because he is destructive in how he operates. And oftentimes when I'm reading today, uh, especially Christian periodicals, I'm hearing a lot of so-called experts, theological experts, that are wanting to diminish the existence of hell and even to minimize the power of Satan. Satan is a powerful enemy and foe. He goes about seeking whom he may devour. He is one who has designed to thwart the very plan of God and the work of God. And we're going to see that in more detail in just a moment. But this is a mistake, both spiritually and tactically, if we're not understanding that we're engaged in spiritual warfare. And I think even more so today than any other time. We look at what's going on in the Middle East right now. Look what is happening in Israel. And regardless of your political view about Israel or about the Palestinians, you have to understand that that land belongs to the Jews. That is their land. It was granted to them by God. It's clear in Scripture. And there's even a mandate for all other nations if they do not stand with Israel and acknowledge their right of sovereignty, but more importantly, their kingdom right to exist in that place then that those nations will be judged accordingly. So it's important that we, we understand that a lot of the things that are happening in our world right now uh, are being motivated, and, and behind the scenes it is principalities and powers and evil forces of darkness that are in high places. And some people will say, well, Pastor, that's all really negative. Well, it is because it's real. There is a real spiritual battle that's going on. And what we have to understand that it even amplifies more the reason for us to have Jesus Christ. But not only Jesus Christ as our Savior, but we have to be immersed in the Holy Spirit. Now when we get saved, we have the Spirit of God that indwells us, but there is 
that point, and we see it in the book of Acts over and over again, where that the Holy Spirit would fall upon them. They were immersed or baptized into the Holy Spirit. This is where we get our power. This is where we get our spiritual understanding of the Word of God. This is where we discern our spiritual gifts, the ability to be functional within the church, but also out in the world. When we go back out into the world tomorrow, we're back in Satan's battleground. That, that's where he battles. Now, this morning I prayed that he has no authority in here. That was my prayer. You have no authority in this place. This is the gathering of the church of God, and you have no place here. So beat it. Get out of here. You know, leave us alone. Let us, let us teach the Word of God. Let us speak to hearts. Let lives be changed and be transformed. So it was apparent as Paul and Silas deal with sharing the gospel that they're going to be opposed. We've seen this from the very beginning of Acts, and we'll see it all the way through to the end. Many of those men who stood up apostolically would end up giving their lives for the sake of the gospel. Surveys report that many believers do not believe that Satan even exists in a recent poll. People say, well, there really isn't a devil. Because we have this perception of someone with little horns, red suit, spiky tail, but, but that's a misnomer. That isn't even anywhere remotely consistent with Scripture. We get that because of the book of Revelation that refers to him of the dragon of old. But we're going to see him in a different light this morning. So Satan would have us reject his reality as being nothing more than maybe just comic book-like so that he has greater freedom to function and to move and to operate to bring about destructive works. And so if you go to chapter 16 again with me, we went through this, but we're going to come back to it. And that's actually, that's permissible. Pastors can come back if they want to talk about something specific. You know, it's okay to do that. But notice in verse 16, now it happened. So there is a happening going on. And the happening originates with the ability of Paul and Silas to be sent forth. They're going forth now. The gospel is going out from Asia Minor. Now it's going to begin to spread all over the known world. And they're going out. And as it happened, they went to prayer. So what are they doing? They're praying. They're coming into the presence of God. Their desire is to seek the Lord and, and, and just to continue to be filled with the presence of God and the power of God. And so they're praying. And it says that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. Now let me give you a little insight about this. This slave girl, the Greek implies that she's probably very young. She's not old. She's a young girl. And literally, she has a spirit of Pythonus. And this was something that was frequently seen in the, in the Greek culture. That same sort of spirit that stood behind the most famous of all Greek oracles. And that was the oracle of Delphi, who was in the temple of Apollo, whose priestess was called a, a, a Pythonus. She was named after the Pythian Apollo. She was a great slayer uh, uh, of the python. 
Thus, Paul and his companions, they're confronting the most powerful demon that was in the Greek culture. So this isn't some just some girl that's harassing them or that, that is somehow is being oppressed. This is a powerful, strong demon that is controlling her. Now the question that I'm oftentimes asked is, do demons exist today? Well, yes, they do. They're the principalities and powers and evil forces of darkness in high places. That is a real realm. They are relegated over locations and places. They, they move and they work in accordance with the will of Satan. Satan controls them. They're fallen angels. A third of the host of, of, of the angels in heaven were cast out with Satan. And so they operate under his command. And the reason being is because he is not, does not have the characteristics of God. He is not omniscient. doesn't know all things. He's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere all the time. And he's not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. But he does have power. And so this is what's going on. So the stage is being set here by Satan. Satan is the one who is the operative. He's the one who's working behind the scenes using this girl, this, this demon-possessed girl, to try to distract from the gospel. Notice in verse 17. And this girl followed Paul and, was, and, and, and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. So it would be easy to misinterpret what's being said here in verse 17. Well, seemingly she's promoting them. That's actually not what's happening. That phrase, the Most High God, is a common designation for God in Jewish texts, but it also occurs in pagan sources. You'll find it throughout pagan doctrine and pagan teaching. It was a reference to Zeus. And Zeus was identified as the Most High God. So what she's speaking is she's not even speaking a half-truth. She's speaking a false truth, a false narrative. And this is what Satan will do. Satan will seemingly use something that you would look at it and you would say, well, that's okay, that's not bad, that's not terrible. Uh, there's goodness in that, there's kindness in that, there's benevolence in that. But he will do that as a subtle distraction to pull people away from the divine truth, the true God, the living God. And we see this all the time in false religions. You know, where people will worship the creation rather than the Creator. You know, the Word of God's clear about this. That, that we can be distracted by following a person who seemingly is God-like to someone. We see this in the Eastern religions. And yet, those people die. And they're not resurrected. And if you go to their tomb, their bones are still there. But if you go to the tomb of Jesus, He's not there. He's arisen. And so, they would use these magical texts to show the pagans respected this supreme God. Typically identified even with the Jewish God. Even with the Lord God. And so, this is what is happening here. Because what happens in the next verse is this, and this she did for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed. So, what, what's happening with Paul? Why is he annoyed? 
She's falling around day after day after day, and she's saying, oh, these guys are bringing the message of salvation. You know, they're, they're following the Most High God. Why would he be annoyed by that? Jesus even at one point got upset with his disciples because there were some men that were preaching in Jesus' name and in the name of God, and they got upset, and they said, surely, Jesus, they're not of you. We need to call fire down from heaven. And Jesus said, you know what? You leave them alone. If they're speaking in my name or in my Father's name, you just leave them alone. But that's not what's happening here. So what, is, what Paul has is he's got some discernment now. He's recognizing in his spirit, he's not bearing witness with what's coming out of the mouth of this demon-possessed girl. He's recognizing that this is a distraction. This is Satan trying to thwart the true and living gospel message. And so he says in verse 18, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. So Paul has the authority to cast out demons. Now, he's not an exorcist. He's just speaking in the name of Jesus and under the authority and the power of the Holy Spirit. So this is something that should be encouraging to us this morning is when we see Satan working, actively working, or coming against the gospel, we have the ability in the name of Jesus Christ, by His shed blood, to take authority over that. We can cast out demons. In my over 40 years of pastoring, I've been involved in casting demons out of someone twice. Two different situations. And I want to tell you something. If you've ever had any doubt about the existence of the devil or the working of hell, then you get involved in one of those situations and you realize that you're confronting the forces of darkness. And in one of those situations, it was a woman we ended up casting over five or six demons out of her who would visibly change her, her physical look. Her face would be contorted. She would speak with other voices that were not her own. And so Paul, he realizes what's going on. And then in verse 19, but when her master saw that their hope of profit... Now, underline that in your Bible. That hope of profit. So what's going on here? You know, what's happening? They saw that their hope of profit. What does Satan use oftentimes in the mind and the heart of, of people? He uses greed. He wants us to be greedy because greed drives us to go after those things that the lust of the flesh and the lust of the, of the eye and the pride of life desire. So he uses that for, for drawing men or pulling them into darkness and away from God. And so that's gone and he sees Paul and Silas and they drag them into the marketplace to the authorities. And by the way, those authorities have no authority over Paul and Silas. They think they do, but they don't. And they brought them to the magistrates and they said, these men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. That's another key. That's, that's another reason for us to think about what is going on here. They're, they're, they're troubling our city. When does Satan resist the church most adamantly? 
when the church begins to trouble cities with the gospel. When churches finally stand up and say, you know what, we're not going to be confined to just being in here. No, 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 no. You called us to be out there. To be the salt and to be the light and to be sharing the gospel and be standing up for the gospel. I'm going to stand up for the Word of God. I'm not going to stand up for politics. That's not what I'm called to do. I'm going to stand up for the Word of God. I'm going to stand up for that which I know can transform and change lives. Politics will never save anyone. There's no salvation in that. But there's salvation in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you change a heart, you can transform a mind. And it says in verse 21, and they teach customs. And what was the custom? It was the gospel. So what is Satan doing? He's saying, you know what? I'm going to use these greedy men. I'm going to use this demon-possessed girl. I'm going to use the authorities. I'm going to use the magistrates to try to stop the gospel. Have you ever wondered what Satan despises more than anything else other than God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit? It's the Bible. It's the Word of God. And He will even use it manipulatively to try to deceive people and get people off track. So, they teach customs which are not lawful for us. Maybe not lawful, but spiritually necessary. Wouldn't you say so? Amen? And He says being Romans, to receive, or to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up. They rose up against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. Satan loves confusion. He loves riotousness. Because that's exactly what he did when he was in heaven when he got kicked out. He tried to create a rebellion. So he loves that because what happens in the midst of that riotousness and and people going crazy is there's nothing but confusion. And oftentimes there's no real rhyme or reason for that other than just the hearts of men that are sinfully wicked above all things and they just want to be destructive. And so the multitude rose up. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. And having put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Where did they put them? They put them in the inner prison. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. They put them in the deepest, darkest, terrible place that you could put them. What does Satan want to do to you and I? He wants to put us in darkness. He wants to put us in bondage. He wants to put Christians back in chains. He wants to do everything that he can to thwart the gospel and to diminish the ability that we have to accomplish the work of God. I love what Jesus tells his disciples in John 14. He says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. The greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. And whoever you and whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. And the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So the anything is asking obediently of God to do a work 
that would change and transform lives. You know, the Bible has much to say about Satan. We just don't do those studies. We just don't look for these things and how he can affect our lives. And, and certainly, the fact that we need to take him seriously. And that's why the tone of my message is, is more thrustful today. Is <laughs> because I think a lot of Christians are asleep as to what is going on you know, in the spiritual realm and the impact that it's having upon the physical realm and the emotional realm. There are seven teachings about Satan that stand out in the Bible. The first one is this. Number one, if you're taking notes, write it down. You might want to study this on your own. Satan is real. Satan is real. In Ezekiel 28, is a dual prophecy concerning both the king of Tyre and Satan himself. And, and, and I want to read the Scriptures to you because it's important to, to get a biblical picture and Ezekiel, he's prophesying against a king of Tyre, but the king of Tyre, as you read this, is reflective or representative, listen to me now, is representative of Satan and how he operates. He says, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus saith the Lord God. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Well, that's a description of how Satan was. In heaven. He is a created being. God created him. And he created him as the highest of the angels. And he says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. So where did he operate? He operated both before the throne of God, but he's also in the garden of Eden. Are you making the connection here? Are you putting the, you, you're connecting the dots? He's before the throne of God, but now he's over the garden of Eden. Who shows up in the Garden of Eden? That slithery snake. The serpent of old. That one who was going to be cast down out of the presence of God. And so it's important here to see how this is all coming together. And he says, you had great covering. The sardis, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, turquoise, the emerald with gold. You had great adornment. And the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. So he had a voice that was not only pleasant, but he had a voice that was powerful. So he has the ability to speak powerfully. And he wants to speak through or cut through the, what we hear from the Holy Spirit. He says, you were an anointed cherub who covers... He says, I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. Iniquity, disobedience, rebellion. You were rebelling against God. And so something entered into your heart. And it says... By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within. So now he's describing the nature of Satan. He's violent. And that violence is from within him. It's, he, he can't control it. He can't stop it. And he says, and you sinned, and therefore I cast you as a profane thing. Profane meaning I cast you out of my presence because everything that you have become was a violation of where you were at. 
is a violation of even being before the throne of God in the presence of God. And he says, I cast you out of the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Think about this. I destroyed you. Not just that I cast you down, but from that very moment, what God was saying was this, beloved. Satan, you're defeated. You have been defeated. You are defeated. You will always be defeated. Your time is limited. You're going to come to an end. You know, ultimately, I will cast you into the lake of fire. But in the meantime, this is why we see such aggressive activities satanically and demonically. He says, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. And what's that mean? He says, because of your pride. You got prideful. You decided, you know what? I'm so beautiful. I've got such anointing. You know, I, I've got some power. I've got some authority. So you know what? Uh, I think that I can ascend above God. I can just take God's place. Wow. This is how he thinks. This is how he operates. He says, you defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading or your, your manipulatives, your dealings. You know, he, he is a great deceiver. And he will trade and give something good to keep us from getting the very best that God has for us. Therefore, I brought fire from your midst. I, it devoured you and I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. And all who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. You will become a horror and shall be no more Forever, And that is the ultimate end, the ultimate destruction that comes for him. Point number two, Satan is a fallen angel. He's a fallen angel. Think about this just for a moment with, with me, if you would. Let's think about the reality of who he is. He was the model of perfection. He was full of wisdom. He was perfect in beauty. He was in Eden, the garden of God, with clothing adorned with every precious stone. He, he was beautifully crafted. If you looked at him, uh, it was almost like looking at God. He was so magnificent. He had access into the very mountain of God. He actually stood where God stood. Wow. I mean, how more privileged could you be? He was blameless in everything he did from the day he was created until that point where unrighteousness entered into his heart, where he rebelled against God. His heart was proud because of his beauty. In other words, his focus came off of God, and now his focus was upon himself. You know, that's one of the greatest tactics of Satan, is to get you thinking just about you. Me, myself, and I, the unholy trinity. You know, it's just, hey, it's all about me. And we live in that kind of a generation. Because the selfish heart, the unregenerate heart, the unsaved heart, can only focus on self. Because there is yet to be a place within that life for Jesus Christ to be enthroned. And until Jesus is enthroned in your life, until you're born again, you're going to live for self. And self is selfish. I'm waiting for the amens right there, if you're wondering what I'm doing. Come on. 
Come on now. You know, self is selfish. And it thinks only about itself. But the transformed life, the, the heart that's been transformed by the very presence of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit now begins to think about the importance of the Savior and His desire to change us and to transform us. Point number two. I, I went there, I left, I've come back. Do you know that as a fallen angel, when you look at Isaiah 14, in just a few verses, there are five I wills. This goes to the point of what I was just talking about, about selfishness and selfism. In Isaiah 14, verses 12 and 14, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground. You who weakened the nations, for you have said in your heart. So this was his heart. He says, you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. Not only will I ascend into heaven, but I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. He says, I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest side of the north. In other words, I'm going to replace God. I'm going to replace God. You know, people do that all the time. Before I got saved, I had all kinds of things that replaced God. Right? You're all with me, aren't you? I'm not mad at anybody. I'm just wanting to make a point this morning. Because I think, in some ways, the church is asleep when it comes to understanding really what we're dealing with, what, what we're confronted with every day. You know, I can be slack in my Christianity, but I'll guarantee you Satan is never slacking off in his activity. He's relentless. Peter nails that down when he says he's going about like a roaring lion. He is a predator. And, and, and we have to be awakened to this. And he says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. How many times have I supplanted I where I should have had Jesus in my life? It says he was an anointed cherub. He was of the highest order of the angels. You know, he had, he had every privilege and every position that you could ask for as someone who was created. In, in his ambitious imagination, he thought that he could stand in place of God, and he's still doing it every day. Because he will tell you, even as a Christian, he will tell you that, that it, was, it is better if you stand in control or in place of your life instead of God. It's okay. Just do whatever you want to do. Just keep calling yourself a Christian and don't live the Christian life. I mean, is that what's going on, beloved? Is that, is that what's really happening? Are people taking the name Christian or, or believer and never getting beyond just that public profession and, and, and coming into the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit? You cannot function 
as a Christian without the power of the Holy Spirit. You can't function. You can't fulfill what it really means to be a believer. That's why we have opportunities and, and oftentimes at the end of services we're praying and we're saying if you want to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, if you desire the power of the Holy Spirit, stand, raise your hands, open, the, open your hands up. Don't do this because that means like you're pushing God away. Just turn them around saying, Lord, yeah, pour out your Holy Spirit on me. Pour out your Spirit. Change and transform my life. The third thing about him is he's a tempter. He's a tempter. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus speaking, he says, Then Jesus led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. We all know this story, right? He's been baptized by John. Heaven's opened up. Voice of God speaks. Dove alights upon him. He's now got the power of the Holy Spirit. But where's the Spirit leading him? Where does the Spirit take Jesus? Well, He takes Him into the wilderness to be tempted 40 days and 40 nights. What is God doing? What is this all about? Is this testing the, the, the genuineness of who Christ is? No, it's more for us than it was for Him. Because you have to remember, Jesus was in heaven with the Father when Lucifer was cast down. So Jesus already knows what's going on. But you see what unfolds. And when He had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterwards He was hungry. And now when the tempter came to Him, He said, if you are the Son of God. So what is the first thing He does? He questions who He is. You ever doubt your salvation? You ever had times of doubting? Wondering, man... You know, I, I really blew it, or I, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And Satan loves to create that doubt. Doubting is a spiritual disturbance that Satan wants to create within the mind. But if you're saved, if you're truly born again, you've already been sealed. You already have the Holy Spirit of promise. And I know this is no revelation to you, any of us, that are Christians, after you get saved, you still sin, right? Everybody should have said amen there. Everybody. I mean, we still sin. But, but that's why we have an advocate. Not an adversary, but we have an advocate who is Jesus Christ. And we can go to Him and we confess our sin and we ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to cleanse us of all unrighteousness and to help us to move away from that life of disobedience. If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But Jesus had an answer. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Boom. That's His first weapon. Jesus' first weapon is what? It's the Word of God. Right here. This is my authority. This is my sword. Hold up your sword. This is my sword. If you got one of them little pocket Bibles, that's a dagger. These are swords. These are swords right here. And he says, then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on a high pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you're the son of God, he challenges him a second time. If you're the son of God. This is the consistency of how Satan works. 
not once, not twice, but three times he challenges who he is, his identity. And he says, you can throw yourself down. And so what does Satan do? He said, just throw yourself down. He shall give his angels charge over you. And, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. He even used the Scripture. Oh, sneaky. Sneaky snake. And Jesus said, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Who is the Lord your God? Jesus saying, I'm the Lord your God. You can't, you can't be tempting. And again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. He has no authority to do that. He cannot provide anything redemptive for us. Satan doesn't have that ability. He only provides that which is destructive. Only to destroy us. And then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only you shall serve. So this is why Peter comes along and says, Oh, by the way, be of a sober spirit and be on the alert. Because Satan is like a roaring lion going about whom he will, seeking whom he may devour. So be sober in spirit. In other words, awoken. You know, we keep hearing about the woke people. Well, we need that in the church. We need to be spiritually awakened. That's this idea of being sober of spirit that Peter was talking about. And he says, be on the alert. And in other words, constantly keep your spiritual antennas up. You know, it's like, it's like radar. You know, radar serves a number of purposes, just like sonar does in the water. A number of purposes. It's not only to detect a threat, but it's also to keep us from crashing into someone or something. In other words, to be stopped. Number four. You're probably thinking, man, there's seven of these? Satan has some power. Once again, Matthew 12 then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and, and, and he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. But Jesus had a response for them. What does he say? I know your thoughts. Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city of, or house divided against itself will not stand. Satan, if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's that authority that he has. J. Warner Wallace reminds that although Satan has power, he's still subject to the ultimate power. 
Even with all his power and energy, he said, Satan is still subordinate to God. God alone is the Most High. While Satan is clearly the center of all evil in the universe and controls much of what goes on here on earth, he has no power over those who have given themselves to God and have trusted in God's Son for salvation. They are protected from this source of evil by the true and living God, but they surely must worship Him. Isn't that interesting? Worship now is part of the defense that you and I have against the enemy. Number five, Satan is the evil one. And if he's the evil one, he is your enemy. Say this with me. Satan is my enemy. When we are fully aware of it, that Satan is our enemy, then we recognize that he not only opposes us, but he first was opposing God. He's behind every evil scheme on this planet. And that's idolatry, that's cults, that's false religions, that is anything that would subjugate man, anything that would put man under any rule or any authority other than under the rule and the authority of God. Anything, whether it be a political regime, whether it be a government, whatever it is that would try to subjugate man under man rather than being under God. Because Satan wants to destroy God's kingdom. We are kingdom people. We exist in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of heaven, because we've been saved. We've been born again. Number six, Satan is a thief. He is a thief. Jesus made it clear in John 10. He says, I am, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Pasture meaning he'll find nourishment. He'll find what he needs to sustain himself and to take care of himself and to strengthen himself. But the thief does not come except to only one thing that he is desirous of doing is to steal and to kill and to destroy. He couples all of those things together. He will steal your joy if he can. He will steal your life in of faith away from you, and He does that through fear, to create fearfulness. He will try to kill you. He will try to kill the life of the Spirit. He will try to kill the very breath of the Word of God. He will try to kill you physically, and He's doing that effectively, especially through addictions. Fentanyl deaths amongst young people is, is skyrocketed in this country. That's all part of his plan. If he can kill you before you get saved, then he has secured you in an eternity separated from God. In a place known as hell. And not only will he, will he, will he steal and kill, but he is destructive in all of his workings. Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. And he says, the reason is, is I'm the good shepherd and a good shepherd is willing to do whatever is necessary, even to the point of death for his sheep. And that's what he did. Praise God. That's what he did. Yeah. One more point. We're almost done. Satan is a serpent. And he's a dragon, but the Word of God says that he will be defeated. 
Revelation 12, verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. So where does he operate? The whole world. The whole world. And he was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of God and the power of his, uh, of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him, and this is how they do it, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Earlier in that same, uh, in Revelation 20, or later in Revelation 21, it says, When I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand, he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. If you read further in Revelation 20, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it for whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to the works, but the things which were written in the books. Make sure that your name is in the book of life. That's the key. You know, the devil has more temptations than the greatest actor or the greatest costumes that have ever been performed on any stage. He's relentless. One of his all-time favorite disguises is that of a lying spirit. And that's exactly what he was doing with that young girl. That was a lying and demonic spirit. Don't think of Satan as something as harmless. But think of him as an adversary. But also be reminded by these words of a great preacher by the name of Billy Graham. He is very clever and powerful, and his unchanging purpose is to defeat God's plans at every turn, including God's plans for your life. So resist him. Resist him. The king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's what Jesus has for us I just, I, I was so burdened about this portion of Scripture. That's why I had to go back to it because of what I deal with, what, what, what I encounter in dealing with people, people that I see, I think, genuinely want to serve God and they, and, and they want to love God, but they've been deceived. And they've been derailed away from standing in the Word of God. They've been, they've been told that it, it's not important to to understand what it means to be a child of God, that it can just be Christian in name only. Beloved, our, our divine purpose and salvation takes us to the very heights of the throne of God. That's where God desires for us to look at our life and examine our life is in His presence. 
Not our standing in the world. I could care less what the world thinks about me. But I'm very concerned about what God thinks about me and how Jesus sees me and how He looks at me. Be encouraged, but be warned. Satan is like a roaring lion going about seeking whom he may devour. It becomes imperative that we make willful decisions to live for God, to go deeper with God, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and to rely upon the Word of God to wash us and cleanse us day in and day out.